This is The Squad Room, a podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the 21st season of SVU. If you have not watched episode 2104, Burden of Our Choices, we advise you to do so before listening. Hello and welcome back to The Squad Room, episode 2104, The Burden of Our Choices. I am your host, Anthony Roman. We have got quite a show lined up for you. We are happy to welcome to the squad room a living legend, Ice T. He throws so much wisdom at us that we are still trying to wrap our heads around it. After that, showrunner and the co writer of the episode, Warren Light, stops in and breaks the script down and he talks about what was happening behind the scenes. And finally, co writer and executive producer, Julie Martin, discusses what the burden of our choices means to her. All this is happening right here on The Squad Room, brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. Our guest is the one and only Ice-T. Yes, sir. How are you? Great, man. Thank you for coming on. I know it was a long day today, so. Well, I'm happy to be part of this. This is something new for us. So you come from a long tradition of musicians turned actors. Did it come natural for you because you were basically always performing or was there a lot for you to learn? Absolutely. I think that entertainers are entertainers. Uh, An entertainer probably can dance, probably can tell some good jokes. It's always usually the center of attraction, you know, probably was a class clown. It's just some people are withdrawn and some people are extroverts and they, they do it. So When I got into music, of course, I didn't think I could even do music, but hip-hop came along and it was something I could do. I didn't have to carry a note, and I was in there. And uh, I think that was like a form of poetry, which hip-hop is. My first chance to be in film was Breaking, uh, the movie Breaking, where I was called the feature rap talker. They didn't even know what rappers were. (laughs) But the first time I had lines was in New Jack City. You got to remember, like, I also came up in the music video era where a lot of times you would theatrically act out some of the lyrics. So I had had experience in front of the camera. I knew what check the gate meant. I knew what all that because, remember, videos used to be shot on film. So I had a little bit of that experience, but I was scared to death doing New Jack City when I got the chance. I was like, a real movie, and I got all these lines I can't do this. And they were like, yes, you can. Yes, you can. Nobody is an actor. Everybody learns how to be an actor. So you got the best people around you, Judd Nelson, Wesley Snipes, and you can do it. And we sat, myself and Chris Rock, we sat with an acting coach. You know what she told us? She said, only way you can mess up is not know your lines and not be prepared and be nervous. Just be loose. And she told me, she said, lines should be easy for you. You're a rapper. You know how to memorize things. Memorize them and come in ready. And, you know, it'll be a breeze because you guys already got it. She said, the hardest thing about acting is getting the part. You've already got the part. And uh, after New Jack City was successful, I kind of felt like I understood the craft. I hadn't mastered it, but I understood it. So you're on Dick Wolf's show, New York Undercover, before this. Which... It's my fifth show I've worked with Dick Wolf. I got the longest running, <laughs> I think, track record with Dick Wolf out of anybody. And maybe Patha might have more years. But I started on New York Undercover as a bad guy named Danny Up. And the way that story goes, Andre Harrell used to be a producer on New York Undercover. He's from the music business. I had a guy named Fab Five Freddy, who was part of hip-hop. And oh, yeah. Yeah, Fab was at my house, and Andre called him. He said, where you at? I'm at Ice's house. Tell Ice-T to come on my show, New York Undercover. I was like, that's a ripoff of New Jack City. Then, you know, black people hit you with, oh, you too big now, huh? That's another thing fans don't understand. Actors don't want to play the same character all the time. That's what showing that you can act is showing that you can be different people. That's part of it. So I said, "Lo, give me a bad guy. So they gave me this guy named Danny Up that was written for a white guy. And uh, we were selling methacatherine, which is meth. Now it's new, but back then I was selling it. At the end of that first episode, I get a call. It says, Dick Wolf doesn't want to kill you. I never met Dick Wolf, but the call came in. Would you do two more episodes? 
I said no, because at the time I was working and I was making money and people don't understand that when you come on as a guest star, you come on as this show because you love it. You don't come on. You're not making a lot of money. I think at that point, the guest star salary cap was $7,000. That's all you made. They have the cap because they can't negotiate with people. They can't afford to negotiate. So this is what you get when you come in as a guest star. I think now it's probably double that, but it's not a lot of money. But that happens. Like if Patricia Arquette comes on SVU, it's because she wants to. I mean, I can't say who wants the money. Right. But- it's a cap, and it's not a big cap. All right, if you say $15,000 to an actor, that's $8,000 after taxes, and it could be eight days. And then, you know, you got to stay in hotels. You probably got your friends out here. Basically, you're going to spend that money <laughs> while you're here shooting. It's, no one's going to get rich right. doing that. But you're doing it. People guest star on shows to show another side of them. Patricia Arquette comes on here to, to show you another version of her that maybe you haven't seen. 90 to- 90% of the time when you see actors on SVU, they're playing something you haven't seen. That's why they do it. They come on here to play the pervert because it hasn't been seen. That might get them a bigger role somewhere else. Long story short, I did that show. Then after that show, I played a gangster in Swift Justice, another Dick Wolf show. Then I was a pimp in Law and Order Exile, one episode where I played a pimp and they killed me with a bowling pin and that one. Then I pitched a show to Dick Wolf called Players with Costas Mandalore and Frank Hughes, which we were on for a full season. And it was a little gritty show, which they had on at eight o'clock. The time was off. And trip off this, back in the day, that show got 14s and it got canceled. Now people are scrounging for it too. Right. But it was I mean, I remember Seinfeld was getting twenties, twenty ones. This is back before cable. After that show, Dick Wolf said, Ice, I wish I had a stronger vehicle for you. I'll never forget that. And I said, Yeah, that's what you, that's what people say when we're parting ways. When I got the call to do this show, my fifth show, I turned it down again. I'm like, I can't come to New York. I know what the cap is. I was trying to invent iTunes. I was in L.A. with my own label. And my boy was like, oh, man, you love New York, man. Dick Wolf's check's clear. Have a little vacation. Go out there and do four episodes. And four episodes turned into 21 years. That's amazing. Now, I read in your book, you just happened to go into Roscoe's and he saw you? Real talk. Um, His assistant and publicist is named Pam. I met Pam recently. Yeah, and Pam has always been with Dick Wolf. And, you know, by having so many experiences with Dick Wolf, she would be the one used to doing the publicity. I mean, he, her became cool. I liked Pam a lot. She would talk to me outside of the business. And um, for some reason, I went into Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles. Now, I lived in L.A., and I knew that was a hip place, but I had never eaten there. And for some reason, my office was right down the street. I went in there. Who's sitting in there but Dick Wolf and Pam? And, uh, you know, hey, Dick, how you doing, blah, blah, blah. I walked out of there. And Pam told me that put me on the radar. You know, at the time, SVU wasn't in the top 40. And I don't mean it was. It's, I just say it just wasn't on the, on the charts the way it was. So when they called me to do SVU, I was like, nah. Because I don't watch cop shows. You know what I'm saying? So I was like, eh. Like that, and then, you know, they kept pushing it. And then Peter Jankowski, who I'm a good friend of mine, I've worked with him ever since I've worked with Dick Wolf. It's like, come on, Ice, come on, come on, come on. You love this great show, good cast, da, da, da. And I came on, I did the four episodes. And I was working with Richard Belzer, and everybody was easy. And the thing of it was, I think, coming from players where I was number one and I was working those full 14-hour days, that was rough. And anyone who's ever tried to do episodic drama knows that's episodic drama is the hardest gig in Hollywood. It's a, it's a movie that lasts a year, and it's every day, one after scene after scene after scene. It'll burn you out. I mean, you know, um, D'Onofrio, it's a lot. It's a heavy workload. I had no desire to be number one on a show. They said, no, you'd be number four. You and Belzer. Uh, you know, Chris Maloney and Marishka are the stars. And you guys kind of like pull up the back. So like on a regular show, we shoot maybe 50 scenes. 
I was signing up for the 14 scenes. I wasn't signing up for the 50 scenes. And uh, I stopped my music. I stopped everything for a year. And it's hard to get back going if you stop. So I said, I'm not going to stop this time. I mean, I, I need enough time that I can still keep my music going, still do all the other things I love. And being a co-star to me was way more attractive than being a star. Wasn't the plan. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's how it happened. And I ended up on this show, like I say, four episodes turned to 21 years. I actually came on the last episode of the first season. So I can claim the first season. So how did you go about creating the character of Finn? So what happened is Dick Wolf got at me. They came in and I, I, had, a, I had this show and I'm doing it, and they got me in a suit and tie early. And Dick Wolf's like, this is not working. He says, Ice, man, you know, like, we're losing, we're losing what you are. So he goes, you don't like the cops, do you? And I said, well, Dick, I was a criminal, so I didn't hate the cops. A punk hates the cops. A punk who's on the corner smoking weed and knows it's illegal, and then he gets pinched. He's like, oh, why are you the police? No, motherfucker, you should have seen him coming. That's, he's just doing his job. You're supposed to be slick. Being a, being a criminal, you have to be a little bit slicker. The cop is watching the line. You're going to cross over and get back without him seeing you. So I told him, I said, no, nah, I'm nothing against the cops. I have something against racists. I got something against bullies. I got something about people that bring their problems to work and take it out on innocent people. Now, if that happens to be a police officer or anybody, I got a problem with him. So he goes, but you agree we need the police. And I'm like, hell yeah. I mean, it's going to be all out crazy out here. You know, I don't need a zombie apocalypse. We need the cops. He goes, okay, I want you to play the cop we need. So right there, he just gave me the ammo for Finn. He said, you know, Ice, if you magically became a cop, how would you handle shit? And being on SVU, I'm chasing rapists and pedophiles. They don't even like them in prison. So it was very easy for me to be this type of cop who hates perverts and rapists and stuff like that. And when I'm acting, I'm not really acting as a cop. I'm acting as a gangster. So when I'm sitting in a, in a room and I'm doing an interview with somebody, it's just like, yo, you finna tell me what I need to know. Or I'm going to reach across there because I'm a cop. Cops, they got the same swag. They both have guns. They both play by their own rules. And they both will issue a consequence if they don't get what they want. One just wears a badge. So I'm very well suited to do that. And I think that these women that watch this show, a lot of them are survivors. And they didn't get justice. So they want a cop like me that looks like he's going to smack the shit out of one of these rapists. They want someone that's not going to back off or flinch or is not afraid of them. So you got Mariska. She's a tough woman. You got Kelly. But you need some a guy that they feel Finn ain't going to take no shit. And it helps them. you know. So I'm like the hero. I'm a hero player here. I'm the hero for the women. But it was your time as a criminal that informed your ability to play a cop. Absolutely. People say, did you ever do any ride-alongs? I'm like, you're from the back seat. <laughs> <laughs> I rode along a lot of times. But I also know how they get down, and we use that. Now, if I was a square and I had never had any understanding of police, I might come in here thinking that they're all happy people and they're all out to try to save the cats from the tree. But they're really not. They're tired. They're underpaid. They're eating a sandwich looking at a dead body because that's what they do every day. So a lot of times when I come in here and I'm really tired and burnt out, I'm like, I'm ready to act because I'm acting like a tired, burnt out police officer. If you see a, a guy playing a cop and he's a hyper, like that ain't how it is. Especially not as a detective. Maybe as a, a guy, like we have a new artist coming in as Jamie. Now she's new. She's green. So she's going to be a little bit more active. She hasn't jaded. She's very eager in her episodes. Yeah. Yes, because she hasn't jaded to the level of what we're going to be having to do on a daily basis. And after a while, you got to bring it down or it'll spin you out. What do you think of the way Finn has evolved? In the 21 years, relationship to his son or just anything that's happened? I don't really see any evolution in Finn. I just think Finn has always just been very even keeled, never nosy. 
not in anybody else's business. I think Finn has been through enough in his pre-life. You know, we've, we've learned a little bit about him having his parents killed, his mother shot right in front of him. I just think Finn is just, you know, he didn't want to be a sergeant. Finn is a cop that wants to bust the bad guys. That's it. Kelly and them, they running around with men, doing, they're having all their female issues. Finn doesn't meddle. He's just a solid person in the, in the squad room, and Mariska knows to turn to him, and he's got her back. Evolution-wise, no, I don't see him changing much. I mean, it's funny. I tell Dick Wolf, I don't even know where I live, Dick. I, have, I don't think I've only been in my house <laughs> once. I don't have a car. I never had a girlfriend. You know, there's not much character development with us, you know? So even though I've aged 20 years, I still, I mean, it's almost like I'm older than everybody, but I play younger and hipper than everybody. So it's a weird character, Finn is. It's kind of like Ice-T. You know, he's very much like me. And the cool thing is when you've been playing a character so long, it becomes easy because it's just like another case. I'm always going to be the same person. Okay, well, Ice, you got a gay son. Okay, how would I handle if I had a gay son? And the writers, they learn your tone. They learn your voice. Sometimes the writers would try to write slang. I'd be like, let me, let me write the slang. Like, you guys take it easy. But uh, very rarely do I change stuff. There's a thing in this business called tone. And once they understand the tone, then they write to that tone. And, you know, people say, well, Finn has the best one-liners, you know. He's that guy that's going to sit on the sidelines and talk shit, you know. He's not going to be in the big, heavy conversations. He just wants to get the job done. What's your thoughts on Warren coming back? I get along with Warren. I get along with everybody. I got along with Neil. I got along with Nooch. Uh, Warren is very invested in it, and he does, like, lots of arcs and curves, like shows that kind of connect. Me as an actor, I just like to have showrunners that you can talk to. I love Julie. Julie's wonderful. Julie worked with Warren first, and she worked with Newt. She's been in here the whole time. But I just like working with people that you can talk to. I don't like people that talk at you. You know, if I have a feeling, I want to feel like I got an open door. I can walk into Warren and say, hey, Warren, this is weird. Da, 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 da. And he might say, nice. Nah, I don't think it's weird. But at least we have a discussion going. I don't like people to just say, just do it because I say so. You know what I'm saying? And I, I have a vested interest in this show continuing. This is my job at this moment. So I'm not bullshitting. So, and then Jamie's coming on as Kat. And any thoughts on that? Are you going to be paired with her a lot? Do you feel yeah, like well, I dig her. I dig her. I mean, I can't think of anybody who's come on this show that I didn't like. Danny Pino was incredible. He's fun guy. Young cat, hot. Great actor a taught actor, like he studied acting in school, you know? And then Andy Carl, like, you know, he's right off of Broadway. So all the people that come on here, I immediately connect to. Um, Jamie, Jamie, her job before when she started acting, she was like the girl at the record plant. You know, like when you would go in, she was like a receptionist. So Jamie net run work with Snoop, uh, Game, uh, Suge, all that. So she's got a hip hop. She understands rappers. And uh, she's just a young, wonderful, nice girl. Me, myself, I get along with everybody. And she can act. She can say, I'd say, you know, the first rules of acting is say your lines and stand on the tape. Once you pull them off, then you can start adding flavor. But you could do the best acting, but if you're off your mark, it doesn't go. Or you get on your mark, and then you don't know your shit. It doesn't go. So say your lines. Then once you get your lines, then you start dribbling through your leg. Once you got them, you can start. Like, get the basics down. She got that. And uh, she's nice. Kelly's nice. Peter's nice. All of them are nice. Like, my job has always been, since I've been on here the longest, is to be like the team coach, like the player coach. Like, I, I Chris left. Danny, you're in. But the game still got to go on. I can't be moping on Chris Lev. Oh, nah, Danny, you're in. Okay, we still got to win. Who's new? Who's new? I told a story once at the Paley Center about Robin Banks. Did you ever hear that story? When I first came on the show, 
I'm not that kind of guy that like will meet you and then throw his arm around you and we're best friends or the second show, let's go out to lunch. I don't know you yet. I'm, it's going to take a minute. We can act like we know each other, but I don't really know if I like you. I mean, and, and I'm not going to fake it. So I came on the show and I wasn't kicking it like they wanted to with bells. I was just being me. I was coming to say my lines and leaving. So they, well, we don't know if you're meshing with the crew. I'm like, I like everybody. But they they felt some kind of way because they wasn't used to being around somebody like me who doesn't just walk up and play bullshit. So I took all of them to the side, Mariska and all of them. I said, let me explain something to y'all. I'm very happy to be here. And you guys are wonderful to me. But you got to understand me. I used to rob banks, okay? Now, to rob a bank, I don't got to like everybody in the car. I just got to know that you know how to drive, you know how to control the room, you know how to go in the safe. If I know that, after we rob a few banks, we'll become the best friends in the world. So me and Mariska have been robbing the bank for 20 years. You understand? <laughs> and, 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 and when right now, right this moment, law and order is on. But Mar I'm not on the screen. Mariska is. So she's handling her part of the lick. You dig? So I love her because she's keeping me employed. And when the camera's on me, I'm keeping them employed. Now, Dick Wolf is the boss of bosses. So if we in the car and somebody ain't pulling their weight, they get whacked. <laughs> <laughs> so in episode three, Down Low in Hell's Kitchen, you have a big uh, with Mathis and he's a recording star and he's coming out and all this stuff. And you have a really heavy scene at the end where you know he's lying about yeah, what everybody happened. Knows he's lying. It's a really tender, like it's a nice scene and I feel like it's informed maybe by your relationship with your son. Did you reach anywhere to get to that or it just comes that naturally? No, I just act like I know. <laughs> It's, you know, acting is make-believe. It's like people always say, well, you learn how to act of like stand in front of a judge. It's just lying convincingly, you know? So, no, there was nowhere to reach. It was just like, I, I believe what the scene is. Like, when I'm acting, I believe what's going on. I'm believing, okay, this dude is lying. He's not going to admit he's lying. Some shit happened to him that's made him come to this place. Maybe not now, maybe not this time, but there's something wrong with him. So regardless what the lines were written, if Ice-T was going to talk to him, I would say that. I'd say, look, man, I'm not going to even fight with you about whether you're lying or not. Something has happened to you to put you in this place. You're in a messed up place. And you're going to have to address that at some point in your life. That's what I would tell somebody. So when you're acting, basically, if you understand the concept of what you're saying to somebody, then the lines just fall in place. But it was a very honest and true, it's written well. That's what makes Law & Order stay on so long. It's written well. It's not written outrageously. It's written like people think. So it makes it simple for Finn to tell him, yo, man, you know, you're going to have to get this addressed, man. You still over here acting like it didn't happen, but you got some deep-rooted shit. And, you know, that's based on the real dude, and it's true for the real dude. You know, you in the midst of all this bullshit, everybody knows what happens, and you're still over here talking about it, it did happen. You know, you borderline crazy. <laughs> in episode four, which is about Evangeline, she's 13, she's having an abortion, and you're working with Kat on that. You had a kid, you were 17, 18 when you had... I mean, that was something that must be parallel to what you went through. Do you think about that stuff when you were? No. Uh -uh. I don't use any of my past or anything for this stuff. I just kind of like listen to the story. I don't, you know, very rarely does Finn have any real stuff where I got to jerk any real emotions out. You know, I always say that people come on this show and they get to act. We're kind of doing dragnet over here. Just the facts, just the facts, just the facts. So... And you know what? One time I was doing an interview and somebody said, well, Ice, does this show made you more aware of female issues? I'm like, absolutely. Because men don't think like females. So it has to be almost hammered into our head. You could hang around black people forever. You're not black. 
So you're never going to really truly know. I can't really think from a female side because I'm not a woman. I can have a lot of compassion for it. But when you're offended, I could be like, why? Why did that offend you? So I understand and I know that now a lot of things that a man might not think is wrong is wrong in the eyes of a woman. In the episode Dis last year, your friend Snoop Dogg came on. Was that fun? You have a good time? Or hey, it- listen, I, I, Snoop calls me up. He goes, yo, OG, man, I ain't going to lie to you, man. I ain't never watched your show. <laughs> then I watched this show one time, man. I watched that shit. I seen 20 episodes. He said, I need to get on that show. Ice, man, what can you do for a player? I said, well, look, a lot of people will say, Ice, I want to be on the show. I, I go to the producers. I say, Snoop would like to be on the show. Chris Rock or like whoever, I'll throw their name in the hat. The right episode has to come along. They can't just put them in. But uh, Snoop calls, and so they call me back. They go, Snoop really wants to do it? I say, yeah, he wants to do it. Well, let us figure something out. Next thing you know, Snoop is on the show. And it's always fun when Ludacris came on here, big boy. Dick Wolf puts Method Man on the shows. Dick Wolf understands that hip-hop is real, and they translates well. People say, why do rappers become good actors? I say, because rappers are real. They're coming from real experiences. They have, like you just asked me, they have a stockpile of real shit where pretty miss actress who came from nothing and now just always wanted to be an actress hadn't even lived a life. Yeah, Ice Cube jumped off the screen in Boys in the Hood. He said, fantastic, right away. Because there's something there. And, and there's something to be said. It's like almost some actors, you need to say, you need to go live, you know? And the great actors, you know, they, they've been through shit. People always ask me, they say, Ice, what do you get along with? I say, I get along with people with soul. Well, what soul? You've been through something. And people that's been through shit have compassion. They're not judgmental. They have a soul. But someone who's never been through shit, they look at poor people. Why are they poor? You know, they, they are on some bullshit because they've never slept in their car. They've never been on drugs. They never had to get off alcohol. They don't understand struggle. So you don't have to be any race to have been through something. It could be anybody. And those are the people I tend to bond with. Is there anybody that you wish would come on that you could interrogate or interview? Brad or come? All right. Ice-T, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. <laughs> He's my favorite man. actor. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, you. thank nice you. To meet you. All right. And now I'm joined by the showrunner of Law & Order SVU and the co-writer of this episode, Warren Light. Let's dig into the burden of our choices. Warren Light, thanks for returning to the squad room again. Great to be back. Very happy with the squad room, by the way. I think the fans are enjoying it. So we're talking about episode four, and I would like to start with the genesis of the episode and where the idea came from. Okay, so this episode was collaborative in the writing and the acting, it, uh, but the genesis of the idea was, even before I got here, I was reading about these fetal heartbeat laws that were passing in a variety of states. There was a spate of bills passed, was it over the summer or in the spring even, and each law was different from the other, but they had things in common, basically saying that once a fetal heartbeat is present and detectable, the woman who's carrying that fetus has no rights to control her own destiny. And some of them got even stranger. The Georgia law said that if a woman were to have an abortion out of state, that would be perceived as murder when she came home. Other states said that if a doctor facilitated it, he could be tried for murder even if it was out of state. First of all, I was wondering whether or not these laws could stand up constitutionally, and I, I don't know that they can. We, none of them have gone into effect yet, none of the more really invasive ones. But I wondered what happens now with state rights. And I started to think, if somebody in Georgia is pregnant, doesn't want to bring that pregnancy to term, and she leaves that state and goes to a state like New York where a woman of any age, even a girl, a girl of any age, has full reproductive rights, which state laws apply? We're going to be seeing case law now. And then I thought, you're probably going to see a thing where, what happens if a pregnant woman is incarcerated in Georgia? If that fetus is considered a viable human being and a living being, aren't you illegally incarcerating a living human being? These laws were not well thought out. Whatever 
the intentions are behind them. And obviously the, the question of pro-life, pro-choice, those are huge questions that divide the nation. But whatever the intentions of those laws, the ramifications of them hadn't been thought out. I thought, this is gonna be interesting. Then I came here and I thought, this could be a good episode. What happens to somebody who leaves her state and comes to New York and seeks an abortion? I thought, let's make the episode interesting, make it a teenage girl a runaway from Ohio. And then, of course, it turned out these laws hadn't passed yet. But then when I did some research, a lot of states have already been punishing people for having abortions under what are called um, protecting the fetus law. So in Pennsylvania, a mom who helped her daughter get abortion drugs through the mail is serving a year and a half sentence for fetal harm. Those laws were passed to prevent boyfriends from beating up their pregnant girlfriends in an effort to induce abortions that they wanted to induce. But they've been used now to punish people who choose to have an abortion. So anyway, all this is going around in our heads. And we thought, so how do we make an episode out of this? And I don't want anything didactic. I don't think that's why people turn to the show to be preached at. We're not saying there is a right or wrong in this world. We're saying this is what's going to happen. And actually, we started then talking to lawyers. And for an episode like this, we start out with our regular legal advisor, Anne Milgram. She said, I'm getting into case law that I don't know as well as people who specialize in reproductive rights for teenage girls. And she turned us over to other experts. And they all said, I haven't seen this story yet, but it's only a matter of time, which actually became a line in the script. This is coming. We're going to get into these battles of state rights. And so we fashioned the story. I also started to talk to our, uh, you, you know, you talk to, look, I've been writing the show for a while, so I kind of knew the answer in advance. But, and I asked two or three cops, I said, you have a pregnant 13-year-old girl, who's the first suspect? I said, it's either the boyfriend, the dad, or the stepdad, 95% of the time. Seldom is it a stranger rape. It's almost always an acquaintance, and usually it's an acquaintance in the family. It could be a brother, it could be a stepbrother. So I thought, well, that makes our story even more difficult. And that's always good. Right. Dif difficult is good. So we came up with Evangeline, this sweet, innocent 13-year-old kid who runs away from home in Ohio, comes to New York. The initial thought is, oh, she's running away to be with her older boyfriend. But that's the first act red herring. But we didn't even make a meal of the red herring. It's a tiny, tiny red herring. It's just, it's to get her to New York. She's come to New York for an abortion. And then the battle is joined. There's a 13-year-old girl who in New York State has full reproductive rights. If you're 13, you walk into a clinic and say, I want an abortion, you can have it. As opposed to Ohio, where a 13-year-old has absolutely no rights to that, must get her parents to approve it. And if the new law passes, would not even be able to get her parents to approve it past six weeks or past the fetal heartbeat. And some of them have past conception, some of the states. So that's a pretty good, I think, okay, we got a good setup for an episode. And I started, we started asking the experts, she comes to New York, parents come after her. Do they have the right to bring her home? Does she have the right to, how does a 13-year-old get the right to stay her when her parents say she's run away, we want to take her home? Turns out child services can intervene on behalf of the child asserting her rights in New York State. I thought, this is good. Also, these things get politicized. So we have an Ohio prosecutor come to New York. I think he sincerely wants to save that baby. That baby is a precious life to him. But he's also aware of the headlines back home, as all prosecutors are. And he knows nothing's better than going into a courtroom and calling everybody in New York a baby murderer. That's going to play well when he goes up for re-election in, I think we called it Mercer County. It was Mercer County, Ohio. We made up the name of the town. We call it Jolene, Ohio. We had an actual town. And then it turned out almost all of the names of the characters that we had made up lived in that actual town. <laughs> so, and it was like, well, we can change all the characters' names or we can just make up a fictional small Ohio town, Jolene, Ohio, which everybody now believes is a real town. I think half of our crew said they visited it. All right, so we have poor Evangeline runs here. Mother and father and minister come after her. Minister's another, you know, it's Jamie McShane, who's a great actor. And I think one of those guys you immediately suspect did it. He was so relieved when he read the script. He goes, oh, I didn't do it. <laughs> um, but... It'll turn out, in this case, that the stepfather is the father of, has impregnated her and has been, uh, and this is unfortunately not that uncommon. The father has been, you know, having sex with her, or uh, more accurately, raping her for the last two years. And that's a secret she cannot bear to tell anyone. And the mother cannot bear to hear it, uh, which brought us to another issue, which is one of the most painful things for girls who've been raped uh, when their mothers don't believe them. And we've, that's just something that's come up a lot in, in stories we've heard. 
That was another part of the story we wanted to tell. How does a mother decide between the stepfather whose marriage has saved her life and her daughter from the prior marriage, the marriage that almost ruined her life? And her faith. And her faith. And uh, I think the actress who plays the mother... In the, She's fantastic. ...does a beautiful job. Yeah. Uh, one of the clear notes we gave, and it's beautifully directed by Martha Mitchell, is... There's no mocking of anybody in this episode from where, you know, the mother loves her daughter, loves her second husband, loves her faith, loves the child that her daughter's carrying. She's not evil. She's not a control freak. She's not a, she's just, you know, a good episode is when everyone's in a horrible position. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if it was the intention or if it's Lucy Walter's great acting. For me, the story shifts a little bit and becomes about her in a way as... More than I expected to happen. Yes, it, it does. It's always a question of whose point of view begins to carry the story. And it, in the writing of it, it shifted to her. And then when she came in, her, uh, I saw her audition. And then that got me to write a little more, got me and Julie and, and Misharin to write a little more toward that. Because, you know, this is a story about mothers. And does a mother force her daughter to become a mother? That's a pretty heavy thing. So it went in that direction and she could really carry it. And there's a beautiful scene toward the end, I think is one of the strongest scenes in the episode. And it's just the two of them, quiet scene about, do you want to lose your daughter or not? And she comes around, I think, to a degree, still heartbroken about the decision the daughter's making, but uh, comes around. There's also another scene I was very happy with was the Carisi scene with the Mercer County prosecutor. I was going to ask about that, yeah. Because, and, you know, Julie and I talked about this a lot as we're planning it out, the notion that nobody wants to have an abortion, that it weighs heavily on you. And I talked to a number of people. It was one of those episodes where everybody was talking, and I talked to a number of people in our crew, and everybody had a story. And one person said, you know, I still go to church every week and pray about an abortion that took place 30 years ago. And I thought, we sometimes forget to mention that, that it is not a casual decision, that it is not something people rush into, or even if at age 15 they casually made a decision, it weighs on people. So I was very happy, and and I think Peter's performance in that scene is heartbreaking. And it's about, as a prosecutor, he has to defend this girl's rights, even though it troubles him. I think that's also an interesting place to put a character. Yeah, and also there's the conversation between him and Kat. You know, Dick uh, Wolf says certain things he'd like to see at all times. He said, to me, an ideal episode is when all six detectives are arguing, but every one of their points of view could be right. And this is one of those episodes where that could happen. And I, one of the, I love having Jamie in our squad room because it lets me have another generation's voice in there. And Jamie's a character who has, uh, her character Kat has grown up in the post-Roe v. Wade era, when these rights were unchallenged, especially in New York State. So I wouldn't say she takes them for granted, but I think she thinks she can't imagine why people want to to her turn the clock back. Contrasted with someone like Carisi, who understands that people have these rights, but also thinks that abortion is a, a much more complicated decision than, than maybe Kat's character does at that. So you have... The potential for people to really get into it and dig their teeth in. We tried to write it so that the arguments were good on all sides. I liked Kat just saying, I'm not going to have a bunch of old white men control my body. I like being able to write a character who can say that in our squad room. And that's her perception. I also liked, you know, hovering over all of this is Olivia herself is the product of rape, the same way Evangeline's kid would have been, were to have been born. And there's a little reference, a passing reference where she says, when my mother was pregnant, and I I looked up the timeline on this, uh, abortion was not legal. And she was contemplating it. And she's, of course, talking about her mother's pregnancy with Olivia. And so that also comes. I I just think one way of looking at it is, would Olivia have been here? Which is that argument. What if an abortion causes causes us to lose somebody who could have done... So much good. So much good. The only right or wrong in this is the stepfather raping his... Stepdaughter for two years is a horrific and all too real event in a lot of people's lives. But it's that's the right or wrong of it. And everything else in this episode is people trying to make the best in a complicated world, I think. Does that happen often where someone comes in, you realize they're good, and you write more for them? 
If I can, I do. I, there's some writers I know who, I was talking to um, the guy who did Fargo, and he told me that he had every word of every episode written before shooting began, and he didn't change one word for the whole first season. And I thought, I guess we write differently. I, write, I'm, I made changes. Last night we had the cast read through at two in the afternoon, and I, uh, I heard the cast read through, and I immediately realized there was some work to be done. I had to strengthen Benson's part. There's things that needed to be done. And Julie and I sequestered ourselves for three hours and did another pass on the episode that started shooting today. Uh, so yeah, I'm always aware of, oh, this guy's popping or she's popping or she's breaking my heart. Or sometimes the reverse, to be honest. Sometimes somebody comes in and you're gonna put a lot of weight on them and you, for whatever reason, I'm getting one note. Uh, and so who else can play other notes in that episode? I think it's very much, and in the edit, sometimes in the edit you have, this episode's pulling this way, so let's thin out some of that guy's scenes and make sure all of her scenes are in and make sure, you know. So it, to me, it's a, it, until it airs, it, it's evolving. So something that I was involved in is in the beginning, in the teaser, you have a band playing some Christian music, mm -hmm. which I co-wrote and produced. And then the idea was this midnight cowboy kind of thing. Is that just for you, or do you think that comes across to the audience? I think it comes across. It's not, Julie had this memory of it. I had the memory. We showed it to Martha Mitchell. We actually looked at the opening of Midnight Cowboy, and that's when we realized it goes on for 20 minutes <laughs> in the movie. And you could never open a movie with that long an opening now. But it stayed with me for however many years since I last saw it when it first came out. What year was that? In 19... 69, I think it is, yeah, or so, 70. So, okay, that's a movie that's whose opening stayed in my head for half a century. So there's something good there. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, and then the notion of this little girl who does, and I think she does a great job, and that's a tricky role to play too. Uh, I thought, what a brave, lonely, scary thing this girl is undertaking. We wanted the transition from, you know, this small town and church, and there's the minister, and there's mom, to like getting on a bus and I thought the closer the bus gets to New York, the more crowded it gets, the more racially mixed it gets, which she's probably also not used to for being in Jolene. And the idea of what a long, scary trip. So whether or not you pick up on the midnight cowboy tip of the hat, that's a big undertaking for her. And also, bonus points, that last shot of her in Times Square was great and scary. And SVU audiences see a little girl like that in New York, in the middle of Times Square, in the middle of the night, and we know something bad is about to happen to her, which is kind of great because that's not the, the story. The story is something bad's already happened to her. But the audience, uh, you know, every SVU viewer sees that kid there and, and thinks she's a lamb to the slaughter. Um, and they don't know the crime has already taken place. So Rollins goes through so much in this episode. And what are you getting at with her? And is she gonna get a break? Well, we'll be seeing, Rollins is going to, yes, there'll be, you know, one of the hard things for me is I'm back after having been away for three years. So my characters were out there without me the last three years. And some, in some cases, I think the characters made some bad choices. <laughs> or some, I worry about Rollins. First of all, I think Kelly's a great actress, right? She's and, fantastic. Uh, there has yet to be a moment or a scene I've written for her that she couldn't play. So the problem, with, though, is when somebody's that good, you tend to write really dramatic things for them because they can make them work. And then you're like, oh my God, I've imposed a lot of drama on that character's life. And I, I feel like she needs to heal. She's now had two kids from two different dads. Neither of the second dad was, it's just never good when you meet your dad because uh, he's been hanging out with hookers, which I think was the back. I, I, I think she could have done better. <laughs> so Dr. Dr. Al was not a good, she's not making smart choices. And we get into that as uh, episodes eight, nine, and 10, we start to understand a little bit more about why Rollins made some of the choices she did. Her character needs to get her life together, find balance. The line today was, I don't want to pick up, I don't want to gamble, I don't want to date random men. And that was the line in, here's a spoiler alert, in her therapy session scene today. So that's where her character is this season, just trying to, realizing that her life is out of balance and she's been acting out, trying to figure out the why of that and trying to, get it together. But this is, again, a case of the actor can deliver so much that you get excited to write and then 
it just yeah you know when you have something like a an opera singer who can hit any note you, you kind of want to write a lot of notes, notes <laughs> excellent warren light thanks for coming on the squad room thanks and now i sit down with julie martin the co-writer of the burden of our choices Julie Martin in the squad room. Thanks for coming again. And we're talking about the burden of our choices. Do you worry when you tackle something like this that about how much you're able to keep also entertaining an audience because you have such a heavy subject going? That was, yes, that's definitely a concern. I think all the episodes deal with difficult material and uh, and tough decisions. And I think this one was particularly right. so. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's... You know, how do you find the character that the audience can relate with? We, you know, had a great young woman actor playing the playing the girl. Um, and also how we really focus it is, which we were able to do in this episode, is how are our characters all responding to this? How are our characters reacting to this? I mean, what are they, what are they thinking and what are they feeling? And I think one of my favorite scenes was, it was a scene in the squad room when it was, I think it was Benson Carisi, and uh, Kat um, sort of presenting three very different points of view on, on the subject. And um, Benson, who I think the scene got, ended up getting cut out of the episode, but it'll be a deleted scene, had a pregnancy scare in college and um, made some decisions. I think she made a decision that she might have to terminate, that she didn't wasn't ready to have a child. And she ended up not going through with that. She didn't have a kid. And how that affected her the rest of her life, you know. And Kat is sort of the new young female detective and very uh, extremely pro-choice and extremely, I don't, you know, I don't want a bunch of men deciding what's right for me. So she was very vocal and adamant in that point of view. And then and then we had Carisi, who is um, Catholic, and we've established, uh, established that. And, and I think... He expressed a point of view that I've experienced also personally is that is that no no woman wants to end a pregnancy. Um, no woman wants to have an abortion. It's one of the hardest decisions I think that that can be made. In most cases, women do a pregnancy test and they either are hoping they're not pregnant or they're hoping that they are. It's very rarely that it's that it's somewhere in between. So it's extremely emotional, extremely loaded. It's it's incredibly difficult on all sides. And Carisi, which we saw in the last scene, was able to talk about his mother's experience. And Would you say that that story was the most important part that you wanted told? That, for me, that was an important part of the story that I wanted told. That obviously, whatever you believe, and everyone has their different beliefs about, you know, is abortion murder? Is abortion protecting a woman's right to choose? I mean, what is more important, the most important thing I wanted to, to tell and that it's never easy. It's not something casual. It's not something that I don't think anyone takes lightly. Um, Do you think Warren would have arrived at that perspective had he written the episode on his own? Well, that's an interesting question. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think he would have. I think, yeah, I think he would have. I think uh, Warren has a very ecumenical point of view and uh, certainly... Is, is in touch with his female side as well. I think makes him such a great showrunner for this show. Also, it was important for me to express, which I think Benson does in the episode, that um, the reality in this country is that, that these restrictive abortion laws affect uh, women of less means, women that don't have other options, um, which is really unfortunate side effect that you're a wealthy woman in Manhattan and you need to end a pregnancy, you're going to be able to find a way to do that. Uh, and if you're not, you're sort of left with fewer choices. Um, and let's talk about Martha Mitchell, who I'm assuming you've worked with quite a bit. I have worked with Martha many times before. She, I, I, I love Martha to her. She's, I think, one of our strongest directors. And um, she brings a very, uh, such a, a gentle sensibility and, and an intelligence and a real thoughtfulness to any scripts that uh, she's directed for us. And I, we just thought she was a natural fit for this episode. And I think she did an amazing job. Was there anything that she maybe made you look at differently or brought to the table that you didn't think of beforehand? You know, she was, she was surprisingly, because I've been on SVU for a long time, and um, she 
pulled our focus a little bit back to the crime that had been committed against Evangeline. I think sometimes going through it, we were we were we wanted to show both sides of the issue. We wanted to be respectful. We wanted to get into the issue, and she brought us back many times, saying this girl was raped. She is the the victim of a crime, and she she pulled the focus back to that. Um, I mean, obviously, it was all you know, it was always there. It was there in the script. It was there in the DNA of it, but to remind us that it's not, it's more than an issue uh, episode. It's, it's, a, it's a young girl who's a victim of a crime. And where does she do that? Is she doing that in the, in when you're doing the prep or is she doing that when you're shooting? Yeah, it was during the prep. She actually had a couple of lines of dialogue that she wanted us to add and a couple of lines to emphasize. I think there was a scene where the girl, after she threw herself down the stairs, said, you know, he, he raped me. And she wanted to add, he's, you know, he's been raping me for two years. Um, and she also really wanted to emphasize the part of the story where Evangeline had tried to tell her mother what was happening to her, and the mother just didn't want to hear it, um, to sort of shore up the pain of that. And that's something that uh, for SVU, we're, all, we're always aware of, but you know, she kept us focused on that. She was a victim of a crime. She tried to tell her. And the hardest thing about for victims is not being believed. So to keep that part of the story alive, that it was more than being the victim of a crime is she, she wasn't believed by her own mother and how painful that was. Is that common for a director to kind of say, hey, guys, Not we all. need to look at this? <laughs> right, right. Every director has different strengths and different yeah. weaknesses. And uh, certainly, and they're all amazing in their own way, but everyone's focused on a different thing. But I think, I think Martha was really able to, to, to dig into the, to the mother-daughter dynamic, um, which is very helpful in this episode. Would you like to say anything about the episode in closing that we haven't covered? Um, no, I mean, I just, I was so, obviously, it's a little challenging to do an episode like this. And I think we all had a lot of hesitation and concern about telling the story in the right way and not necessarily taking sides, but bringing up the points that we thought were important. And, and I was really, I was appreciative of, all, of all, how all the actors were so invested, I have to say. Um, Benson and, and Rollins and her scenes with the girl, and Benson talking about her own experience being pregnant in college, and, and certainly Carisi talking about his mother. Um, we spent a lot of time talking to the actors about all the episodes, but this one particularly so. Well, it came across beautifully. Yeah. So. Thank you. Thank well, you. thanks for coming on, Julie Martin. Thank you. And I'm sure I'll see you again all right, on see you The again. Squad Room. Take care. That's it for The Squad Room. We love hearing from you each week, so please keep it coming. Follow us on Instagram at NBCSVU and Wolf Entertainment and on Twitter at NBCSVU and Wolf Den. The Squad Room was hosted and produced by me, Anthony Roman, executive produced by Elliot Wolf and Warren Light. It is brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. We'll see you next week. Thanks.